0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, The Gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we'll be hearing a message entitled, For the Sake of Our Brothers and Sisters. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 12 to 19, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: In the 1800s, One of the most celebrated violinists of his time was Niccolò Paganini of Italy. Near the end of his career, he willed his favorite violin to his home city in Genoa in Italy. With that fabulous gift, however, came a demand. This violin was never to be played again. It was to be given to be preserved for history, not to be played. One of the great dangers of the study of spiritual gifts is that's exactly what becomes of them. We admire them, we preach about them, we define them. We talk about those who have used gifts well in history. We even study them in our home Bible study groups, but but the danger is that we don't actually use them by committing ourselves to service of others to the glory of God. They become like museum pieces set behind glass, relegated to history lessons as we stand in awe of how, how wonderful they actually are. The uncomfortable truth is that it is far too easy to allow the Church of Jesus Christ to become a spectator sport. Under this system, only a few use their gifts in in worship, that is, in leading and directing, and in the Word, preaching and teaching, and the rest of us simply watch. What a tragedy, then, when that should occur. We become like a violin under glass. What we will need to do is to avoid two extremes— The first is what I've already said. We we become a spectator sport. The second extreme is exactly its opposite. It's the extreme in which everyone uses their gifts, and that's good, but then there is no orderliness and and chaos rules. No one respects leadership because, after all, we all have spiritual gifts, and my gift is as important as everyone else's gift, which, which, of course, is true, but we despise order leadership, and the proper context into which to use them. Now, when it comes to the gift of tongues, I think that's a danger. For one, Paul has been making the point that when the local church gathers for worship, tongues is a poor gift indeed. How can it be any different? It doesn't build up the body of Christ, he says, for the person speaking in tongues is a foreigner to others. No one understands him or her. They might as well be speaking into the air. Furthermore, speaking in tongues doesn't make a person more spiritual than the rest of the church. After all, all of God's people have been baptized into the Holy Spirit. All confess Christ as Savior and Lord. And furthermore, faith, hope, and love are the requirements of spiritual growth, not tongues. And still further, the danger is always there for tongues to degenerate into some form of ecstatic experience which is divorced, from the serious study of God's Word, and and when that happens, the speakers in tongues don't care about the serious study of the Word. But, and this is key, that doesn't mean that tongues are of no value. Clearly, they're a gift of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit doesn't give gifts of no value. There is no reason to put the gift of tongues under glass and then acknowledge that, well, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's just that we would never expect anyone to use it anymore. So how do we remedy this problem? In 1 Corinthians 14, 12-19, Paul tells us how. He says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Notice that Paul begins with a command. If you're eager for spiritual gifts, be eager for those kinds of gifts that excel in building up the local church, more than the gifts that build yourself up and then having made that statement, Paul indicates that he's still not finished with his treatment of tongues. Remember, the gift of tongues had been misused in Corinth. And so Paul has been explaining what the gift of tongues is. First, tongues is a gift given by the Holy Spirit to some believers, but not to all. Second, tongues is not a sign of advanced spirituality. Third, Tongues is a gift in which the one speaking is speaking a real language, a language that he or she has never learned before. And fourth, tongues is praise spoken to God. It's never a message to people. That is, every use of tongues is an act of worship, of adoration, of glorifying God. Tongues is never a message to God's people. It is rather an expression to God from the redeemed heart, in which the Holy Spirit is assisting the person speaking in tongues to worship God in a way that's shrouded in mystery. And that's what we have learned about tongues up till now. Now Paul adds another element. Tongues, according to verse 14, is non-intellectual. It's praying with one's spirit, meaning that there's an inner component in which the human spirit is attuned to God in prayer. But we don't know what we're saying, only that in this prayer, the person praying in tongues is engaged in worship. And I think we should stop here for just a moment. Let me describe to you two kinds of Christians. The first is what we might call the intellectual Christian. I mean, they memorize large sections of Scripture. I mean, they might know some Greek and some Hebrew. they study theology. They can describe the hypostatic union. They can debate supralapsarianism. I mean, this person has a comprehensive understanding of major doctrines of the Christian faith, and they know how to discern truth from error. And that's a good thing. Indeed, I would argue that every single Christian should be engaged in this kind of activity. It's our calling to do this kind of thing as a means in which God is giving us faith and leading us to be his faithful servants. But there's a second kind of Christian. The second kind of Christian is what I might call the the charismatic Christian. They stress zeal, emotion, outbursts of praise, great inner passion for the crucified life, fully yielded to God. All of life is lived under a passionate, joyful expression of worship to their God, that also is our calling. Now the good news. Although we are all going to have natural tendencies in one direction or the other, we don't have to choose between them. Paul, you see, uses himself as a model, one who prayed with his spirit and also with his mind. Paul actually balanced the two. A man of great intellect and learning and a man who worshiped God while imprisoned in a dungeon simply because he couldn't keep quiet about Jesus. Look again at what he says. Verse 15, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. What we need is to understand what he meant. When Paul says, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also, he does not mean by that that he's going to do that publicly. Paul is saying that in my private prayer life, I will pray both with my spirit and with my mind, and that becomes clear as we read through this text. Now, all of us must understand what it is to pray with our mind. I mean, we can, as an example, worship with our minds when when we remember the attributes of God. I think a great activity for worship is to concentrate on one of God's attributes and then be overwhelmed with the greatness of God and Thank Him for that attribute, and then also begin to imagine how that attribute contributes to our life. Let me suggest an example. Imagine you're worshiping God around the attribute of His omnipresence. You're using Psalm 139, verse 7 Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? You begin to imagine God being present to all spaces at all times. You, you think of the things in your life, everything that you've ever done was done in the direct presence of God. He was immediately there. You begin to imagine yourself, whether brushing your teeth in the morning or when at work or going out at night or in church on Sunday, all done in the immediate presence of God. Then you begin to thank God for the benefits of this, for your way is never hidden from God. He who is good and loving never takes his loving eye from you. What harm can befall you since you're always before his face? See, all of that's good. It's excellent worship. Worshiping with our mind is mental reflection. It's a thoughtful response of the being of God. God wants this of us. But did you notice that worshiping God this way does elicit a response? A response that engages the affections. That is, there is another component in worship, something Paul calls worshiping with our spirit.
0: We're missing you. And the opportunities we've had in the past to meet you face-to-face, share in times of worship and laughter, and the study of God's Word. So enough is enough. Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt are excited to invite you to our 2021 special virtual event called The Gathering, coming on Sunday, September 19th. Enjoy an exclusive message from Dr. John Newfeld, hosted by Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and musical guests that will enrich our time together in worship. Last September, people from right across Canada attended online in their offices, homes, on their computers, or even their phones. It was so encouraging celebrating our common passion for the Bible and the significance of teaching biblical truths to a new generation. More information is on the way, so keep an eye out at backtothebible.ca or sign up for the daily audio mail or monthly ministry email update while you're there. Or just give us a call at one 800 663 Two, four, two, five.
1: Worshiping with our spirit involves worshiping with the depths of our being. It can be a reflection of the soul's inner delight in God. It's an attitude of desire for God. It, it involves emotion, longing, holy inclinations leading in God's direction. It's, it's the inner self's deep realization that I have been created for God, and the profound sense that with this knowledge we are satisfied in God. It's difficult to put into words, into a form of expression. This kind of expression simply goes beyond words. It, It emanates from deep within the Spirit. Do you hear? Why would we want only one, either in spirit or in mind? Why would we not want both? And Paul says, I will do both. Worship with my spirit and worship with my mind. I will not leave either undone. And in terms of our discussion, some people, when worshiping with the spirit, have been given by the Holy Spirit a gift of tongues in which these deep inner spiritual longings for God find expression in a language they've never learned, the gift of tongues. I mean, stated in this way, it should be plain to those who have never spoken in tongues that that what's described is indeed a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a means in which the Holy Spirit has chosen to energize and make alive our worship of God. Let me also say that from my vantage point, I can't even imagine why that would be controversial. Why would we seek to stifle the soul's expression of finding in God a source of delight that our language can't express? But, says Paul, this kind of inner, mysterious expression of delight in God, when expressed in community, never blesses the whole church. Verse 17 says, For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. And so Paul sets down an ironclad rule for the church. When God's people gather, worship must be intelligible. That is, it must be the kind of worship that is mental, understood, comprehensible. Where there is a great deal of room for non-intellectual worship in our private life of worship, corporate worship is supposed to excel in building up the whole body. That is, it's intended for a common shared understanding. And that can only happen when others do understand. You can't say amen to that which you don't understand. Communal understanding is a prerequisite for corporate worship. So for that reason, Paul demands that any use of tongues in in corporate worship must be interpreted. But how do we know if there's someone present who can interpret the tongues? And Paul answers, the person who prays in tongues should also pray that he or she can interpret. And so Paul will not allow for a public use of tongues without interpretation. But the matter of interpretation often leads those of us who are in non-charismatic churches to ask, well, should there be any place where tongues is publicly practiced? Well, hang on to that thought for now. I'm going to try to answer that in my next message on this matter. But why will Paul not allow for a public praying of tongues without interpretation? One reason for that is found in verse 19. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I'm fairly certain that while Paul would not forbid someone from speaking in tongues in some form of public setting, from verse 19, we can be fairly certain that Paul would not be overly concerned if there were no expressions of tongues in public settings. The idea of comparing five words of instruction to 10,000 words in tongues, well, I think he's making his point. Remember, the man who teaches this is a man who in his own private prayers did pray in tongues. But in public worship services, Paul seems to have never prayed in tongues. The man who finds no fault in someone praying in tongues, the man who even approves of it, seems to leave so little room for it in public worship services. Let me add something to this. From the information that we have about this matter, first from the book of Acts and then from the epistles, we are not aware of any church outside of the church in Corinth where speaking in tongues was practiced inside of a worship service. Now, even while I hesitate to make the argument from silence, that is, just because we don't hear about it doesn't mean it didn't happen, well, sure enough. But even if it did happen, it doesn't seem important enough to mention anywhere else. See, I understand from that, that public speaking in tongues, outside of the Pentecostal experiences that are described in Acts, and the experience in the church in Corinth, well, it was a rare experience indeed. I mean, compare what we have here to what Paul writes to the Colossian church, Colossians 3, verse 16. There he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. See, here Paul lays out both preaching and teaching with singing and worship, but no mention of tongues. Or listen to Ephesians 5, verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. See, here Paul's not addressing the teaching part of the worship service, but he does mention corporate singing, which seems to have been an essential component of the worship services in the early church. So when Paul speaks of singing the Psalms, he no doubt means that the Old Testament book of Psalms is is to be put into music and taught to God's people. See, I know that there are some denominations in which their hymn books have an entire section that are dedicated to singing all 150 psalms, that is, 150 hymns based on the 150 psalms. I mean, these Christians think that singing the psalms is actually mandated in the New Testament. I don't think we have to go as far as John Kelvin, who argued that we should only sing the psalms. I think we can, however, notice that the singing of the psalms are commended to God's people. But because Paul also mentions hymns, he might have had in mind other expressions of worship. And and as an example, sometimes some of the things that Paul writes, I mean, at least some have suggested, were in fact part of the hymnology in the New Testament church. I mean, one such possible example is the hymn of Christ's sacrifice that's found in Philippians 2. Or think about 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 13, which begins with these words, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. So it's been said that these words were in fact hymns that were sung in the New Testament church. And so when the early church sang hymns, they put the great doctrines of Christ and of the gospel into music, and they sang doctrine. But what does Paul have in mind when he speaks of spiritual songs? Does he mean what some call singing in the spirit, where where people will sing in different kinds of tongues during a worship service? Now, I've been in churches that have practiced that, and at least to my ears, it really does sound beautiful. But given Paul's emphasis on understandable speech, I would think that he'd frown on that activity. And so what would constitute a spiritual song? Well, some have suggested that these kinds of songs are are praise songs that speak of spiritual experiences with God or of the soul's inner delight in God. And they might be songs that in some experiential fashion express adoration to God. So we have singing scripture, especially the Psalms, singing the great doctrines of the church, and singing words of personal delight and adoration to God. But all of that to say that there is no other church outside of Corinth where Paul actually discusses the matter of tongues in a public worship service. So it seems that this development in Corinth might have been an anomaly, a kind of a one-off. It was not the experience of the majority of New Testament churches. Rather, it was unique to Corinth. Now, if that's the case, please notice Paul's response. He doesn't forbid it. He certainly never commands it, but he doesn't forbid it. Instead, he restricts the way that he would allow it to be practiced. He will allow for it, but he will restrict it to no more than two or three speakers, and then demands coherent interpretation so that the church never forgets what public worship is for. It is for common understanding of our God. So please notice that according to verse 19, Paul would rather have five words of instruction to thousand words of tongues. So what do we learn? We learn that we should prefer rational instruction, teaching and preaching, and people learning the scripture and the gospel over expressions of ecstatic worship. That is, in public worship, the emphasis should be on teaching rather than on tongues. The idea here is that all God's people need to be instructed. So what should happen in public worship? Well, from what we've read, it would seem that public worship, however it's arranged, consists of singing songs of worship and instruction in Scripture. That forms the basis for New Testament corporate
0: worship. John, thanks so much for your teaching today. One of the things that came to mind was bringing tongues in line with all the other gifts. Really, what we're saying is tongues, like all the other gifts, it's for the corporate edification of the body.
1: Yeah, that's so important for us to understand. That's not to say, Ben, that the gifts all have personal edification. I mean, when I use my own gifts, I find myself being built up by using the gifts that the Lord has given me. But the purpose is to be facing my fellow believer and to ask myself, what is it that in the gift that the Holy Spirit has given me that my fellow believer deeply needs? So I'm looking to build them up And I'm looking to build them up in a way that's comprehensible and understandable, that
0: we can in some way say amen to that. I know what the Lord is doing for me. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us tomorrow as John continues with his teaching about the Spirit's gifts right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. I think you'd agree, sometimes what we need is a dose of encouragement, laughter, and a reminder that God loves us. The goal of Laugh Again is to use storytelling and laughter to engage people of all backgrounds with a message of hope and joy that can only be found in a relationship with Jesus. Host Phil Calloway provides his unique life perspective and insight in a style that encourages and uplifts. One listener wrote, thank you for helping keep our focus on gratitude. It truly helps. In these times, I'm grateful to know the God who holds the whole world in the palm of his hand. Laugh-Again exists to lead people to consider a lifestyle of true joy and hope in Jesus. To find out more or to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, like Laugh-Again, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca.